politics, sports, movies. You are listening to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. My name is Frank, and I'm the host of the show. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking the show out. If you're a return listener, thanks for coming back and continuing to listen. The show is available on the following apps. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox. If you listen to the show using one of these apps, please click subscribe, and this will allow you to receive notifications when new episodes are uploaded. You can also listen to episodes on the show's Facebook page, which can be found by searching for Let Me Bend Your Ear. Episodes are also available on the show's YouTube channel. Just search for Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. This podcast covers three different topics, politics, sports, and movies. Each episode is dedicated to one of these topics. You can also follow the show on social media. The handle for Twitter is at BendYourEarPod. This is also the handle for Instagram. If you want to email the show, the email is BendYourEarPodcast at gmail.com. If you're not using a podcasting app to listen to the show, you can always get episodes directly from the website, which is located at www.letmebendyourear.com. Who's the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. So, Angela, welcome uh, to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being invited. All right. So I want to discuss um, uh, your candidacy. Uh, you're the vice presidential candidate. So I want to talk about, uh, first of all, um, kind of your background. What kind of led you to this position now where you've decided to run and become a candidate? I got drafted. <laughs> every, <laughs> okay. every time I've ever run for office this is the third time. This is my swan song. I'm done after this. But every time I've ever done this, I've been drafted. Um my first run was in 2014 as an independent socialist. Um, I ran for Milwaukee County Sheriff against former Sheriff David Clark, and I'm sure folks know who that is. He's the cat with cowboy hat on Fox News that's technically black but hates black people. Um, that guy. <laughs> and that um, we pulled 20% of the vote in that election, surprising everyone, myself wow. included. Yeah, no one saw that coming. I mean, basically, it was a referendum against Clark. So, you know, it wasn't like, oh, man, 67,000 people just knew and loved me. Wasn't like that. Um, but it was it was still interesting. And um, that got the attention of the Socialist Party of the USA. And in 2016, I was the running mate of Emidio Mimi Soltisic, uh, my dear friend who uh, recently transitioned. Um, and I was his running mate in 2016. And after that, I swore off politics. I really did mean it. And I got a call from Howie Hawkins earlier this year. And here I am. Well, good. And I want to get into that because I know, you know, the, the term socialist has a lot of connotations to a lot of different people. Um, since you, this is something that you've been passionate about and been running, explain to the people out there, what does it mean to you? What do you think the value of that is as far as uh participating uh, as a socialist in the political process in the United States? I think it pushes the conversation about what we need away from corporate interests and really centers what communities need and direct community control of the entities that are the most close to us. You know, we're talking about 
particularly with our platform, talking about community control of not only police, but also public schools, public housing, public transportation, um, business, manufacturing, all of those things where workers and community members have direct say in the way that all of these entities work. I see. And, and when you, um, when, when that agenda, uh, is out there, when, when, when do you see the people really support you? Where, what is it that they're looking for that they're not getting from the two parties? I have my own definite opinion on the two party system. I think the more voices need to be heard from all spectrum. So that's why I'm glad to have you on. What is it that connects, um, the voters to you guys the most in the Green Party? Because obviously I know the Green Party has been around for a very long time, has been pretty much in every major election. So what is that grassroots effort that that brings that kind of passion uh, to the people that support the Green Party? It's basically what you just said, you know, that it's grassroots and that we are advocating for putting the power, literally putting the power back in the hands of the people, we the people. Um, and I think that the fact that we are the only party that is talking about reversing climate change, we are the only party that is talking about the de complete decriminalization and legalization of not only marijuana, but also of sex work, also of harder drugs following models, you know, from New Zealand and also Portugal that, you know, center people's needs versus treating, you know, sex work and treating substance use as crimes. Um, we're the only party that's putting that forward. We're the only party that is talking about making sure that people have access to safe and healthy housing, that housing is a human right, that this is not something that people are, you know, it's not a privilege. These things are a right. Medicare for all as a community controlled national health service, that was ours. You know, folks get that mixed up with, well, what the, you know, the Democrats, no, sweetheart, the Democrats stole that from us and they gutted it and then they took it off the table, but that's ours, as is the eco-socialist Green New Deal, which, you know, the, you know, front runner for the Democratic Party made very emphatically clear that he is not support the Green New Deal. So, you know, that's fine. That's ours anyway. So um, we're the only party that is putting the issues that people are asking for on the table. And not only are we doing that, we've always done it. Right. And, and let me ask, because I think where there's a, a, an issue for people, uh, whether it's a, a socialist or, or a more left agenda, what would you bring to the table uh, as president and vice president regarding that kind of balance between, like you said, uh, advocating for people's rights, advocating for, for marginalized people and the, because obviously we need, we have to have an economy. What, what do you think um, we could do to bring both of those things together, the, the best parts of what your platform is and the and the way we have to run this economy, the free market economy that we have now. Well, you know that we advocate for a socialist economy. You know, we are unapologetic about that. Mm -hmm. And we also understand that there's a transition involved and that, you know, this is not an overnight process. So all I can say is, you know, we would be as, you know, obviously willing to be as diplomatic you know, in working with, you know, Congress and, and folks as possible, because we understand that this is not something that they are used to. Um, it is a change from the way things are currently done and it would require, you know, a, you know, it's not an overnight thing. And a lot of diplomacy 
would um, would be necessary to facilitate it. No, that's a good point. I agree. And as far as uh, let's um, tackle some issues of the day, let's start. Let's start with the Supreme Court. So obviously, this is a big battle uh, about who should be on the court. What qualifications a nominee should have uh, and an administration uh, w with Mr. Hawkins and yourself, what what kind of judge would you be looking for to put on the Supreme Court if that opportunity presented itself? Well, first off, one thing we will tell you is, you know, until our position on this is until, you know, the election takes place and a winner has been, to, you know, a new president, new uh, administration has been you know, announced and that it is something that's going to be, nobody should be trying to pick a new justice to fill that spot. Um, that, that we just feel that that's completely premature. It's inappropriate. Um, and, you know, if I didn't know any better, it looks like a power grab, but hey, that's just me. <laughs> um, and as for, for us, I mean, the Supreme Court, would look, you know, would function a little bit different under our administration. We we believe in term limits. Um, we believe in, you know, making sure that people who are sitting on that in those in those places are responsive and have a, a track record of being responsive to the needs of their communities. That these are not people who are acting out of you know, their own personal religious beliefs or, you know, their own political beliefs, but that they are bringing, you know, a capacity to be, a capacity to be truly impartial um, into, into that space with them. Right. I understand. Now, when you say term limits, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Do you mean term limits for even justices on the court instead of being a lifetime appointment? Yes. We feel, I mean, the times change. I mean, you can't, I think it's unrealistic to have someone appointed to a lifetime position. I mean, you know, Justice Bader Ginsburg served basically until she, you know, transitioned. I think that's a little excessive. So, I mean, we need to have folks who are, you know, their thinking is along with the time. And they're nimble enough to, you know, be able to um, follow the events that are currently happening, the things that are the closest to people, and be responsive to those things, you know, versus, you know, this is the way that we've always done it. And, you know, I think there's a sense of urgency that happens when you know that your time in your office is finite. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, uh, especially with Congress, I, I'm with you there. I think uh, I've, I've gone back and forth on term limits a lot. I've, I've thought long and hard about it, but I agree with you. I think uh, there's a complacency that sets in when, when you understand that basically you can keep being reelected. Of course, the incumbency rate of reelection is so high. Mm -hmm. uh, there's really no incentive to get things done even forget about even doing things right or wrong just getting things done period uh, so I, I, it. I personally yeah. have seen it you know from one of the most segregated cities in the country and we've got political dynasties in the city that i'm from i've witnessed this and you know it's it's, it's sad Absolutely. All right. So let's move over to um, the pandemic. So obviously that's been the major story of 2020 or, or the one of the major stories. We'll get to the other one in a moment. But 
what what do you think uh let's let's start with what would uh hawkins administration had done had the pandemic happened on your watch so what would you have done differently what do you think uh would have been the best way to tackle this it's unprecedented uh it hasn't been about 100 years since we had our last pandemic but what what do you think should have been done wasn't done uh that that could have made things uh you know easier to handle or better to handle well our plan around covid would have been to make immediately because you would have already had a medicare for all you know, medical system in place so that people can, would be able to access it and get treatment. Um, we would have had a test, trace and isolate program in place to begin with so that we were able to monitor, you know, the spread and contain it. And also making sure that people were receiving a monthly income. You know, our, our platform is $2,000 a month for every adult. $500 a month for every child so that people, when we ask people to shelter in place, they were not having to be fearful of not being able to buy food or meet their financial obligations, whatever those are, they would have been able to shelter in place uh, and, and know that there was an income coming in that would have covered what they needed. And we would have made sure that you know, people who are landlords and, you know, small business owners, that those folks were receiving month, you know, monthly amount as well to keep their, you know, their obligations covered so that they weren't having to lean on their employees and were able to rehire their folks, you know, when it was safe to do so. And also as landlords, that they weren't having to lean on their tenants, you know, many of whom are unemployed as a result of COVID. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things we could have done. As far as PPE, we would have been able to um, invoke the Defense Production Act and, you know, turn industry in such a way as to be producing PPE, you know, making sure that all of our, our frontline personnel everywhere that they were had the, the personal protective equipment they needed. And, you know, just thinking of, the early days of the pandemic when you had nurses working in garbage bags and you had, you know, my daughter and my sister are CNAs and there was no PPE provided to them in the facilities that they work at. And so just thinking of, of all of those things, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things that we would have been able to do and implement immediately um, to keep people safe during this pandemic. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And let's move over to the next uh, uh, other big issue of 2020, uh, the the civil and racial unrest uh, triggered by by the the murders of Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Jacob Blake, uh, George Floyd. Uh, what what do you think? Um, obviously, I think COVID and kind of this is almost hand in hand. I think the social unrest and, and, and people's uh, situations have um, in combination with you know, long systemic issues regarding uh, police and minorities uh, has kind of come to a head here. So what do you think now after what we've seen, what do you think are some of the solutions that we need to be looking to uh, to try to make this better? Because this is something obviously that's been around uh, from the beginning of time. And it's something that it seems like we continue to battle uh, regardless of whether COVID is involved or not. What do you, what do you think we need to be doing uh, to, to hopefully get to finally get to a place where uh, it is getting better? I think that, you know, one of the things that 
this pandemic has done is expose just how bad this is. And I think that, you know, what people are not ready to hear, because in this country we like quick fixes, there is no quick fix to this. This requires ending racial discrimination, ending the racism that I, I, I personally firmly believe is at the core of this country. If we are going to end that, we are going to have to change the system. We're going to have to change, and that requires at some point revising the Constitution and removing from the 13th Amendment the loophole, uh, the third, that clause that allows people who are incarcerated to be used as slave labor. That's one of the things that has to be fixed, um, as it is a major contributor to the problem of mass incarceration that this country has. We incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world. Um, I think that when we are, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has called for defunding the police. And our position on that with our campaign is, you know, it is, it's necessary. You defund the police to a point to, and reallocate the money to uh, support community infrastructure and, and provide wraparound services that people need. And if you think about it, it is not, you know, some unbelievable cause, not, you know, the police actually what police do as far as responding to violent crime, the things you would need police for is 5% of what they actually do. And so making sure that you maintain a police force that is able to do that, that has also been vetted and, you know, the racists, the sadists, the misogynists, those who are transphobic and homophobic have been screened out. And so you have a police force that is able to be responsive to violent crime in the way that it needs to be. And you have funds allocated for, you know, folks who, you know, you don't send an armed officer to a substance use issue. You don't send an armed officer, which is what we saw in Atlanta, that's not the right response when you've got someone who is intoxicated and asleep at, you know, in the, in the drive through line at Wendy's that you don't need a, a, an armed cop for that. You need a tow truck and you need a, you know, a substance use counselor. And so, you know, there's a thousand and eight things that we, we can do to address it. You know, one of the things that we are advocating for in our campaign and also as, as a green party is the right to self-determination, you know, particularly for marginalized communities, which is something that we have not had in this country and um, something that we need. All right. And before we move off this, because I want to get this, because I know when a lot of people hear defund the police, I think they they think it's abolish the police completely. Mm -hmm. And from you've been pretty clear here that that's not what you're talking about. So uh, it sounds like you want a reallocation of funds to go where they need to go while having the police do what they should be doing. Is that, do I have that right? Yes. Okay. All right. So let's move on to, uh, I want to get to foreign policy. So obviously an important part of the president's uh, job is foreign policy, uh, how we interact with other nations, whether or not we engage in military um confrontations or not, all those big decisions. So uh, as a Green Party, what is your philosophy regarding how to handle foreign policy and specifically relations with other nations and nations that may be hostile towards the United States? 
Well, one of the things that we want to do is challenge this idea of American, imperial, uh, American exceptionalism that has us moving through the world as the world's police officer, which is you know, something we've seen for decades. Changing the way that we, we interact with other countries. I think um, you know, one of the things that when we're talking about defund the police, we are aware of the fact that defunding the police will not generate enough revenue to provide the services that we need. And so it is also in our platform to defund the military by 75% and bring in the wars that we are currently involved in, which I believe is between nine and 14 different conflicts around the world and bringing our personnel home, which keeps them safe and also bringing the resources as far as the money, because you know what we're spending as far as a country on the military is absolutely astronomical. And it is the lion's share of the federal budget. Where could we be reallocating those funds to build infrastructure in this country? And so, and also when we're talking about climate change, the US military has the biggest carbon footprint of any other thing. And so if we are serious about reversing climate change, it's incumbent on us to reduce our carbon footprint by reducing our military. And we would keep, of course, you know, just like with the police, you keep enough personnel, you know, to be protective, but we're not in a position where we are going around the world and initiating, which is what's happening and what we've been doing for decades initiating conflicts in different places. Um, again, you know, when we're talking about, you know, foreign policy, the first thing that comes to my mind is diplomacy. There's a lot of tension around the world that, you know, we, we've got a lot of dues to pay as a country and we've got a lot of amends to make. And so by defunding the military, by, you know, pledging no first use of nuclear weapons, uh, encouraging not only for ourselves to you know, disarm and, and de-escalate, but also encouraging other countries to follow suit in good faith and changing the way that we relate to other countries um, and promoting peace, cooperation, you know, an exchange of resources, particularly at a time when so many of us have been, you know, worldwide have been affected by climate change. You know, I think it would increase our standing in the world and change the way that other countries consider us. All right. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's 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 an issue that's always complicated, and 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 the wars that we fought, you know, whether we agree that they're they're satisfactory or not, has, has created a lot of issues uh, outside of that. Definitely, um, I want to get some information about the campaign. So, uh, just to be clear, are you guys in all fifty states ballots? We are not. Um, okay. For folks who have been following us, you know that the Democratic Party has pushed us off the ballot in my home state, which I take extremely personally, my home state of Wisconsin. And we've been pushed off in Pennsylvania and also, I believe, in Montana. They tried it in Texas, but we were able to beat that one. So um, we are on the ballot in at least 30 states. We are right in, in, I want to say 14 more 
And I think there's only three states where we're basically a dead zone. You know, one of which is Oklahoma. I want to say Nevada, and there's another one. All right, because I, I I interviewed um, candidate Sean Howard, and I, I asked him the question I'm going to ask you, because in my podcast I've advocated more parties being allowed into the process. I think more is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think two parties is unacceptable, and the choices that we get are unacceptable as well. Uh, what are the challenges other than ballot access? What are the biggest hurdles that you've encountered trying to mount a campaign that can make a serious challenge to the to the top two parties? Well, we don't have the media access that the duopoly does. And, you know, where people are not in like most people in major metropolitan areas know who the Green Party is. Yes. But, you know, when you're talking about and I live here in South Carolina, so, you know, I know. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, folks out in the sticks and I say that with love, (laughs) um, when you're talking about folks out in the sticks, they don't know. You know, unless, you know, you're connected to someone that that is, you know, active or whatever. And in a lot of a lot of marginalized communities, people don't know. And we're also combating the fact that people are so conditioned to only think of one party or the other and, you know, are very resistant to the idea that you have more than that you're entitled to more options. You know, you would be surprised how many people are absolutely offended by that. Idea. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, uh, that is not surprising at all. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm a registered independent myself, so uh, I've had this debate with friends of mine, and it really yeah. angers me because I, I, I'm tired of hearing the, well, if you vote for candidate C, yeah. You're going to hurt candidate A or B. And my response always to that when I push back is if candidate A or B can't withstand candidate D, E or F, then your candidate's not that strong to begin with. Why is it the obligation of an outside party to make it easier to support the system that clearly is not working? Uh, and it, it angers me because, like I said, I, I have no problem voting for a Democrat or a Republican if I think they're the best candidate. But I want other options. And I, and I think it's outrageous that such as it's a simple request, but uh, these other parties get frozen out. And I know the other issue other than ballot access is the media. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the media, mainstream media, uh, because the way I've been seeing it is they don't, they kind of aid and abet the top two parties and not giving the access to the media to any other parties that's running. They absolutely do aid and abet the, the duopoly and, and freezing us out. They absolutely do. And I've had people ask me if I think that it's intentional. I know that it's intentional. The only time that we received coverage, like, you know, with CNN and with MSNBC, and it was for them to bash us, of course, but was the, the, the fiasco in Wisconsin. And now all of a sudden you want to talk to us. That's really gross, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> I was I was annoyed. But um, yeah, media access. And I think a lot of people don't realize that for third and fourth and fifth parties, you know, parties outside the duopoly, we really have to fight and we have to fight hard to get the little bit of mainstream media access we might be able to get. And I think a lot of people think is that we're not just trying, you know, that we're just not trying hard enough. And that's not true. You know, you can jump up and down and you know, there was, there's a very popular radio show, and I'm not going to name it, but there's a very popular radio show 
where the individual has repeatedly expressed frustration with the duopoly. We wrote that host a letter answering their questions about what they had questions about, like in detail. And our folks on Twitter have jumped up and down and, you know, got them, hey, we're, we're raising our hands and throwing our hands up. This person hasn't reached out to us yet. This is what we're dealing with. Wow. No, and, and I and like I said, that's that's unfortunately that's not a surprise at all. And and as I've stated before, and I'll continue to, to state it, the, the media and, and I guess I, I'm really talking about television media. I do think uh, print journalism is kind of the last bastion of real journalism, where 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 people actually care about the truth and care about uncovering wrongs. Uh, but the but the television media is basically a a, a show, a reality show at this point. Uh, they they are making a lot of money. Um, a lot of money. And that's unfortunately where it comes down to it. There, there is no money in, in having more than two parties. It's basically almost like a sporting event. So we have one team versus the other team and we're just going to cover the game. And, uh, unfortunately it's, it's, uh, I think they've abdicated their duty. I think it's, it's pretty shameful actually, uh, when they have the, the power there, they have that power and they're just using it in the wrong way. No, we agree. And, you know, it's just very frustrating because this year, with all of the things that have made this year as unprecedented as it is, this is a year when people are saying, why do we only have two parties? I've never heard so many folks express that. You know, even in 2016, with as much upheaval as, you know, was happening, I didn't hear this then. And I'm hearing it this year in quarters that I never expected to hear. It's like, whoa, what? Wait, huh? So, you know, people are ready for options. People are ready for ranked choice voting. People are ready for the idea of proportional representation in government. People want more than A or B because they're finally seeing that, you know, what we on the left have known forever, that this duopoly is really not a duopoly. It's, it's basically one party with two different faces. Absolutely. And people are finally awake to that. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it, and that's the part that I think hopefully more people are starting to get. I think they really, and, I, and this is where, again, where I, I have a problem with the media because there's a narrative that's, that's spun on both the left media and the right media that the other side is all this and they're all this, there's just all these differences. And when you really look at it, if you really look at it at the core, it's the same. It's really, and, and it leads to basically nothing getting done. And I find it, I find it fascinating where I hear that Congress has a 19% approval rating, yet they keep voting these people back in that they say are terrible, that they admit don't do a good job, but yet these incumbents continue to be reelected. And I can't wrap my head around it. And I, I think it's because, and I, and on my show, I, I hold the voters accountable too, including myself. Mm -hmm. As voters, we've got to do more. We've got to demand yes. better. So as much as I can rail against politicians, it, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us. That's where our power lies. And I think that's where we're lacking because 107 million people didn't vote in 2016. Imagine mm -hmm. that power, that block of power of those people actually participated. Then we could force the issue, force the issue of more than two parties being represented because if some candidate, whatever party they came from that wasn't Democrat or Republican, could harness that voter base, the rules wouldn't matter anymore because that person would be forced to be put into the game. And, and I wish people would just do that. And hopefully we get to that point someday. I just, the voters have to do it. They have to do it. Well, we've, we've got a culture, you know, that you alluded to before, 
We like bread and circuses in this country. We, we want to be entertained. We do not want to be challenged. We don't want to be forced to be a, an active part of it. You know, we want to elect folks and we want to stand back and throw our hands up and say, have at it, do your thing. And, you know, this, I believe that's gotten us to where we are. We treat these folks like rock stars and they expect it. And it's like, you know, they're not, we're not challenging them. We're not holding them accountable for what they are doing or what they're not doing. And they know that we're not going to. And so they keep getting elected. They keep, you know, you know, making sure that they're okay and that they're, you know, a little piece of the pie, you know, that somebody benefits from it just enough to keep folks interested, but no real change happens and no one challenges it, challenges them on it because it's just not what we do. We have got to stop treating politics like a spectator sport and get involved, which means getting messy, getting dirty. It's not fun and it's not sexy. But we're going to have to do that because these folks do not take us seriously. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Well, before we wrap it up here, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do this. What can, where can people find you? I want to get your word out there. Anyone that's on board with your platform, where can they get you on social media? What can they do to help? What, what, what do you need from, from the voters right now? Other than their vote, obviously. Well, I want people to talk about this platform. I want people to share it. I want people who are supportive to talk to, you know, where it's safe, because this is a volatile conversation right now, too. And I want people to know that I'm aware of that. So where it is safe to do so, where you are not in harm's way, um, having these conversations with folks. If this is a platform that you support, talk to people about it. You know, and if you're interested in helping with the campaign, we are at www.howiehawkins.us. Um, hit us up. Um, but I think it's a very powerful testimony coming from folks who actually support this platform. You know, what are your personal reasons? What parts of this platform appeal to you the most? Which, which resonate most with your life? Share that with people. Um, our social, well, my social media is all the same. It's Angela N. Walker, N is in Nicole, um, for Instagram, for Facebook, and also for Twitter. And I do answer my own stuff. I may not answer it immediately because I still work every day, but um, I will get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just just talk about it and, and talk about these ideas of ranked choice voting. Talk about the idea of, you know, more than two parties to have, you know, the right that people the fact that people have the right to options. We need to have these discussions and those discussions need to keep growing. Absolutely. And actually you're going to get my last question. I know you work every day. What do you do? I wanted wanted to tell the people what you do. I am a dump truck driver. I love that. I absolutely love that. (laughs) When I heard that, uh, that just, I don't know, it made me smile. I don't know why, because I love it's just I had a preconceived. I was like, she's a drug. Of course she could, because she can be anything she wants. So I love that you're a dumb truck driver. I, I love that. And I and I want to personally, from a personal perspective, whether I agree or don't agree with your positions or your platform or your party, I, I appreciate people like you that are willing to put their hat in the ring because you're actually doing the work. And like I said a few minutes ago, more voters need to do the work and you're actually putting yourself out there. And I know that's not an easy thing to do. And I know that comes with a lot of things that are uncomfortable. 
and inconvenient and 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 downright nasty sometimes. So mm-hmm. I, as a voter, appreciate that. I appreciate you, and I appreciate people that throw their hat in the ring because it's important. And someone like you that's working every day, that's a that's a regular person that that cares when you really don't have to. So I appreciate that. So I want to thank you for that. I would push back very gently that I do have to care because the things that are in our platform, that's my life. I need Medicare for all. I need, you know, to to know that if something happens with my job, I still have access to medical care. That if something happens with my work, I still would be receiving a guaranteed income. The bottom is not going to be pulled out from under me. So this is very personal for me as well. You're right. I stand corrected. Absolutely. I stand corrected (laughs) on that. So again, Angela, thank you so much for coming on. And I want to have these conversations and I'm glad I'm I'm trying to get as many candidates that are willing to come on as possible. Because like I said, for me personally, it's important whether whether I agree or disagree. That's not even the point. The point is I want to hear as many different voices as possible because that's how we grow. I think that's the other thing we we don't as a country, we don't listen to other people, especially people with differing viewpoints. That's how we get better. That's how we get smarter. And that's how we grow. So these conversations to me, even if if, I would encourage people, even if they're not going to vote your way or wherever to these conversations need to happen and they're important. So I appreciate you being a part of that. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much, Angela. And thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other app, please take a moment to rate and review. This is a quick and easy way you can help the show attain a higher profile in searches when people are seeking out new podcasts. Another way you can help raise the profile of the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard or you think a friend might like it is to share the episode on your social media. This is another easy way to help the show reach a wider audience. The podcast is available on the following apps. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox. The show is also available on both YouTube and Facebook. Episodes can also be downloaded directly from the website at www.letmebendyourear.com. If you want to email the show, the email is bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope everyone has a great week.